The Bob Murphy Show, episode 108. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this one, I want to talk about, many of you have probably already seen it, but this hilarious clip from TV where... It's Brian Williams talking to, I think she's on the New York Times editorial board. Her name's Mara Gay. And they uh, end up pontificating about how much Mike Bloomberg's campaign spending could have done if they had just if he had just given a check to everybody. So if you haven't heard it, it's just jaw-dropping. So that's what I'm mostly going to talk about. But before I jump into that, let me just make one quick point about the coronavirus stuff, which is I'm recording this. At this point, several U.S. states have declared states of emergency. And obviously, uh, everyone's waiting with bated breath to see how this thing turns out. But let me just make this modest point. I've seen on Twitter people like tweeting at those who were saying, don't worry, the Fed has everything under control a few months ago. Tweeting at them along the line, you know, with the stock market crashing along the lines. Oh, good thing, you know, the Fed's in charge. Ha ha. You guys guys nailed it. That kind of stuff. And then the critics of the perma bears come back and say, oh yeah, you guys, you think you called it? I don't remember you predicting a coronavirus outbreak, you know, that kind of stuff. So in other words, the people who like believe in the efficient markets hypothesis and they like, oh, buy and hold. And, you know, whenever the market crashes, their go-to responses either, oh, I can't look at my portfolio. And in fact, that's the right thing to do. Don't look at it. And people really are saying that who are trained in economics. Or to say something like, ah, great time to buy, which also violates DMH, but I realize they're just being cheeky. And so specifically though with this thing, those people who mock people like Peter Schiff or whatever for thinking they have some insight into what would drive stock prices and so that they could ahead of time have a feeling like, oh yeah, the market's really overvalued. I think it's going to crash at some point. Like the people who believe in that sort of statement, whether they agree with Peter Schiff's particulars about you know his diagnosis versus those who think, no, that kind of talk is nonsense. You can't, in principle, you can't know what the stock market is going to do ahead of time. And so those people, the latter group who believe in the efficient market hypothesis, when this stuff started happening, their, again, their go-to response was to say, no, no, this does not at all justify the people who have been warning the stock market was way overvalued and the Fed blew up another bubble, blah, 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 because this is the reason the markets are crashing right now is coronavirus. You know, it's new information. This is totally consistent with the EMH. As new information comes in, stock prices are adjusted basically instantaneously. And, and then we just go forward from there on a random walk with drift, if you want to get technical. Okay, so there's the context. Now my modest point is, come on, there's no reasonable explanation or uh, calculation of the impact that this coronavirus outbreak globally is going to have on the future stream of net rents or dividend payments or however you want to quantify it, capital gains, 
to the owners of corporations, which is what the stock market is. And so, I mean, like, look, for example, some of the worst case scenarios for the U.S. that I've seen, which, you know, go on the high end of all the estimates and everything in terms of the individual numbers going into the estimate, is saying like 2% of the U.S. population could die. So obviously that would be a tragedy. That would be horrible if that happened. But I want to say, would that really, you know, suppose everybody knew that was coming with certainty and they had, like, suppose, you know, people were informed of that two years ago and they knew this was, well, you could say people get a joke. Suppose people were just notified of that a month ago and they were absolutely certain. They knew the exact timeline of when people were going to get sick and everything. Would that really reduce the future you know, the, the lifetime value of factories and farmland and stuff like that? I mean, I think the answer is clearly no, by 2% or by, excuse me, by 15%, which is what we're trying to explain here. Because the stock market, at least as of one moment, was down 15%, like over the course of four days or something. So would that news justify that for just about any physical asset you could think of? I mean, even the airlines. Like, let's say you own a fleet of... uh you know, those big jets. And then you get this news. I mean, would that really, you know, like if you just found something like, oh, shoot, there's, uh, you know, some weird mold or something on the planes and it'll take us six months to disinfect it and everything. But other than that, the planes will sit there and they'll be okay. It's just we got to, you know, you can't use them for the first six months. So your plans for these planes now, just push them forward six months. So over the lifetime service from a brand new jet, just if you push that forward six months with as low as interest rates are right now, really, that's going to cause a drop in the capital value of that jet by 15%. I mean, so that's the kind of thing I mean. And then the other, I mean, not to get, not to, well, I'll stick my chin out and let, let if people want to take me out of context, they can. Can't stop them. I'm not going to let them control my speech. Um, it's not like it's going to be 2% randomly drawn from the population. It's going to primarily be elderly people who are already retired or in nursing homes, right? So in terms of, again, is there any plausible way that this news, though tragic, could translate into a rational reduction of 15% in the market value of major corporations? I it just, that doesn't seem right to me. Of, of course, it doesn't mean guys like me or Carlos Lara were right when we were freaking out in the beginning of QE and telling and pointing to the amazingly tight correlation between the S&P 500 index in the, in the Fed's uh, balance sheet, which I was doing repeatedly, and I still think that's good that I did that. But, you know, in other words, we have yet to be vindicated in our broader warning. Someone could say, well, still, I'm glad I was in stocks for the last 10 years. That's, you know, that's still an open question. I'm not, I'm not saying my side won. I'm just pointing out, you, you can't merely just say, ah, coronavirus, give me a break, you idiots. That, no, that doesn't, that doesn't explain it. And again, before we leave this topic, I am not saying the way to assess a health crisis is through the lens of GDP or stock prices. I'm just saying some people were claiming the drop in stock prices was due to the coronavirus, and I'm saying I don't see that. Okay, so let's pivot now to the main topic for today's episode, which is this just shocking clip. So again, just to set it up, and then we'll obviously play it for you guys in case you haven't heard it. This is Brian Williams talking to Mara Gay, who's from the New York Times editorial board. They're talking about Mike Bloomberg's expensive campaign. Let's take a listen. You see it as a possibility if he wants to spend a billion bucks beating this guy. 
he could do it. Absolutely. Um, somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. I've got it. Let's put it up yeah. on the screen. It, when I read it uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent $500 million on ads, U.S. population $327 million. Uh, don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American $1 million and have had lunch money left over. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's true. It's disturbing. It does. It does suggest, you know, what we're talking about here, which is there, there's too much money in politics. Okay, so some of the points I'm going to make here are pretty obvious for libertarian internet warriors who've been in the trenches for years. But let me just go ahead and make it for the sake of completeness, because if I don't make these obvious points, then I'm going to get barraged by emails from people saying, "Bob, I can't believe you missed this basic." Uh, but then I, I promise I'm going to take one of the points probably more deeply than you've seen other people take it when they talk about this stuff. So I don't think it'll be uh, merely a review session for all of you good folks. All right, so the first thing is, of course, that math is totally wrong. If Bloomberg had instead taken that money and given it to split it up evenly among all Americans, it would work out to $1.53 per person, not the million, right? Bloomberg would have needed... In the trillion, in the hundreds of trillions, if uh, if he were to give out a million dollars to every American, uh, I'm going to link to a Charles Cook National Review piece. So again, folks, this is BobMurphyShow.com/slash 108. Um, so he, I mean, I already knew what my take was going to be on this stuff, but he he spells out a lot of these points too. So I'll go ahead and, and link to that. So yeah, the exact number is 327 trillion that Bloomberg would have to be worth to be able to give every American a dollar, or sorry, <laughs> every American a million dollars. I did the opposite mistake. Um, but the, the thing is here, it's, uh, I don't like the characterization of this. I'm not saying Cook did this, but the way it was initially reported on was that, oh, look at this absurd math error or arithmetic mistake, or math is hard, Barbie, you know, that kind of stuff. And obviously I get you're trying to write a funny headline. I'm not holding it against them, but my point being, this actually wasn't a, a math mistake to me. I mean, it was, but what this really represented was unbelievable ignorance about wealth concentration, right? So just, I mean, just think through what they must believe, right? They believe that Mike Bloomberg, if he wanted to, tomorrow could set in motion a process that just in terms of, I mean, I guess, there's issues of like homeless people who don't have bank accounts and stuff. We'd have to figure out how do you give that guy a million dollars. But they could, they think Bloomberg could, let's say in the course of two weeks, literally eradicate poverty from the United States. Not merely eradicate poverty, but transform everyone, take people who were originally beggars and turn them into someone worth a million dollars just in a matter of two weeks. And Bloomberg would barely notice it. That's the thing, too. It's not that Bloomberg would have to give up his vaunted position and become a commoner. It's that they think instead of having the latest figure I saw, he was only worth $56.1 billion. I don't know if that's because he booked his campaign spending or what, because he used to be reported as being worth $57 billion. Maybe he, uh, he took out a whole life policy loan and they counted that somehow. They got in there. No, they can't because it's private. They don't know. Um, so the Bloomberg, instead of being worth, let's say, $56 billion, now is only worth $55 billion. They think... And his, you know, the, the reduction to him, and I guess you could say, no, Bob, it's good because they're all uh, Rothbardians. They don't believe in interpersonal utility comparisons. If that's the reason, 
then I, I withdraw all the objections and I rest my case, uh, case dismissed. But I don't think that's really what's going on. I think they actually believe, or at least if you, if you take that exchange to its logical conclusion, that you know, they, they think that not just um, Bloomberg, but the other billionaires walking around, that they really could just end all of the material suffering. I mean, again, we don't want to fall in the trap of thinking, you know, as long as you have enough money, everything's great in life and you live, can live as a full human being. No, of course not. But in terms of material privation and all the things that are difficult if you're tight on cash, they think that Bloomberg or other billionaires just in two weeks could eliminate all of that and barely, you know, have a hiccup in their own growth of wealth. And yet they just choose not to. So the, believe it or not, when I saw this clip, I actually, after I recovered from the initial shock, I actually understood progressives more. And by the way, I know that's very patronizing. And I saw one guy, I know Daniel Keene on uh, Twitter was sarcastically retweeting me. And it's like, oh, look at this. You know, he's explained progressives. Ha <laughs> ha. I, I'm not, obviously, some progressives know the wealth distribution. Thomas Piketty doesn't know it that well. But but I, in terms of the rank and file and like me trying to understand why is Bernie's rhetoric so appealing to so many people or try to understand why do people hate rich people so much, you know, that kind of stuff. Then it made more sense. It was like, oh, if they think these guys are just walking around and just choose not to save everyone from poverty because they just of a whim and our blind ideological devotion to property rights. You can, you can see why like, okay, if that's what they think is going on now, I under, I mean, obviously, even if that were the case, even if, suppose Bloomberg really did have $327 trillion as a libertarian, um, you know, if he acquired it justly, I would say it's, it would be, it, it should be illegal to take the money from him against his will to, to redistribute it. But, Still, you, you can see that if the world really were the way that this Mara Gay and Brian Williams think, and certainly the tweeter, then, okay, now I kind of understand what motivates communists, to, you know, and Antifa and whatever. I understand why people smash buildings and are so furious if that's the world they think they live in. So let me just talk a little bit more, though. So what I say what really struck me about that clip after I recovered from it and then appreciated what the progressive worldview would be, or at least among the rank and file. The thing though, that when I say this wasn't an arithmetic mistake, what I mean is, um, let me just use an analogy and you'll see what I mean. It'll be quicker to do it that way. Because obviously in a sense, it's due to math, but that's not the issue. So suppose on Fox News, you got Bill O'Reilly talking to, I don't even know, he's not the right analog, Brian Williams. I don't watch Fox enough to know who their anchors are. But some guy, you know, hosting a show and then talking to somebody from the Wall Street Journal, I guess, editorial board. And they're, um, and they, they say, they're talking about Bloomberg and how Trump's calling a mini mic. And then they say, and this, this really struck me. Let's, let's pull up this tweet. And it was a tweet from, you know, some right wing, you know, guy with a, flag and his, and his behind his headshot on Twitter and stuff. And he's called, you know, U, U.S. Gary or something and his, his Twitter handle. And he says, uh, you know, Mike Bloomberg is five foot seven. The Empire State Building 
is 1,250 feet tall. That means you could stack 200 million Mike Bloomberg's on top of each other to reach the top of the Empire State Building. Talk about mini Mike, exclamation point. And then it comes back to, you know, the Fox interview and they are just, you know, and, and Bill O'Reilly or whoever the guy is, you know, talking to the guy from the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal editorial board. And, uh, and they're just taking that at face value. Like, you know, that's, that is really, that, that's amazing. You know, 200 million Mike Bloomberg's head to toe on top of each other is, is the height of the New York or the Empire State Building. It, it really makes you think when you, when you put it in that perspective about just, you know, he is mini Mike. I mean, would you say that, oh, they just made a math mistake or that was an arithmetic error, they need a calculator? Or would you say, what the heck? Like, do you, do you just not know how the world works? You actually thought <laughs> you could take 200 million Bloombergs and stack them head to toe and that would just be as tall as the Empire State Building? So, folks, the real answer, it's more like 223 Bloombergs. I, I, for that, I assumed he was 5.6 feet tall. Right? Like, wouldn't that be the issue? Like, if you're off by a factor of a million or almost, like, that's that's not merely an arithmetic mistake. That's like showing you don't understand anything about the magnitudes involved. If you if you're that if you're ballpark, you know, if you if you didn't know how to be <laughs> not off by a factor of a million, so that's that's what I mean. And again, this was not like that. Um, was that guy's name? Mark Dice went out to some beach in California and got some Bernie bros or something and was asking them, if, if, we, if Mike Bloomberg distributed all his uh, campaign spending among Americans, how much do you think they'd get? And they said, I don't know, a million dollars? That, that's not what this is. <laughs> this is something that, and again, it wasn't even just the original tweeter. That was Brian Williams and the lady from the New York Times and people were pointing out, this was a prepared segment too, right? It's not like they were just flipping through their phones or something and the camera was rolling and they happened to be caught discussing something off the cuff. I mean, this thing was <laughs> prepared ahead of time. So the producers, they're like, no one in the show saw that and their spidey sense went off to say, wait a minute, is it, does, does it matter that this is totally wrong? I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm just an intern here, but does that, <laughs> like it's, it's fascinating. Somebody was saying, he would love to watch a documentary about, you know, like that culminated with that segment airing, like just to see the backstory, like how did this happen? What went wrong? You know, <laughs> like when there's a plane crash and the airlines have to go through and figure out what, you know, what can we, what can we change among our procedures to make sure this never happens again? Okay. Um, another point that people often make on this is that, uh, and, and this is the thing I want to spend the remainder of the episode on another point that people make often is they'll say um, the problem here when people are thinking about redistributing and, and by the way, let me mention too, since we're going to get uh, comprehensive here, another thing that in the free market tradition people have pointed out for decades is the very term redistribution is loaded and kind of fuels the progressive. Well, they would have said liberal before or leftist. Um, but by the way, that's a point for younger listeners, the people who today call themselves progressives, that wasn't the label we all used 20 plus years ago in U S politics. They used to be liberals. And then that word got so stained. And then also to show that they were more ideological than just like Democrats, I think, but in any event, um, that's why I like Paul Krugman's column folks, what is it, what is it called? 
it's not called conscience of a progressive, it's called conscience of a liberal, because that was the term of choice before. And then for whatever reason, that just became uh, radioactive. Okay, so it's kind of like Tom Woods no longer calls himself a neo-Confederate, even though, oh, come on, come on, a little levity there for you folks. So back to uh, the point I was making, in the classical liberal tradition, See, we used, to call ourselves, we used to call ourselves liberal. How about that? Mises was a liberal. In that tradition, the term redistribution itself, sometimes some writers are pointing out, is uh, misleading because it, it suggests that originally what happens is everybody goes to work, you know, and all the owners of farmland and factories contribute their factors of production into the economic machine you know, all the wheels are turning and the pistons are firing and then jump out of the pipeline comes all the goods and services, which are then distributed by the capitalist laws of distribution into the hands of the various, you know, workers and capital owners and landowners and blah, blah, blah. And then the socialists come along and want to redistribute the fruits of the economic machine that capitalism has originally distributed in the first round. Right, and of course, that process, everything I just said there is not correct, or at least it's extremely crude and leaves out a bunch of important processes and institutional mechanisms such that the socialists cannot merely come in on the scene at the end of each period of output, take what the capitalist machine created or produced with the available resources and known technological production functions, and then just redistribute it in a more equitable manner the very fact that you're going to do that changes how much gets produced in round one before you then redistribute it in round two. All right, so again, even using the term redistribute to say, ah, oh, yes, the progressive agenda, they want to redistribute everyone's income or let's suppose they did redistribute Mike Bloomberg's wealth, even using that verb is, uh, is loaded and, and like you've partially let them frame the debate. Okay, so anyway, one of the popular things to point out in terms of the error of this way of thinking is to say that, um, you know, these progressives who want to take wealth away from billionaires and hand it out to everybody or, you know, have a huge tax on them or whatever, they're picturing them as Scrooge McDuck, right? They're picturing Mike Bloomberg in his mansion. He goes down to the basement, flips open the door, and then there's just tons. Of, so Scrooge was used to swim in those gold coins. And so here... I, th I guess the idea is they think that Bloomberg has just a whole basement full of $100 bills. You know, he's got enough $100 bills to add up to $57 billion when they say he's worth $57 billion. Or, you know, he has a fleet of cars and planes and houses and things. Stuff that, you know, if you said that, like if you looked at a regular U.S. household that was worth $50,000 all told... You know, and what would its assets consist of? You know, maybe it would be, be like the equity in the house. You know, if it was a younger couple and they're only worth 50000 on paper, they probably still have a big mortgage lean against the, the house and so on. Just some, a little bit in their 401k or whatever and some money in the bank. And then they got a bunch of credit card, blah, blah, blah. All right, so they only got 50000 So you can see their assets are, maybe they got a car that's paid off or something. They have a boat. But their assets are just things that are like durable consumption goods, really. And maybe some liquid funds. 
that that's the bulk of it. And so if you th- so you think, oh, Bloomberg is just that times a million, right? Because Bloomberg's worth not fifty thousand, but more like fifty billion, right? So if if you think Bloomberg is just the equivalent of a million households, then oh, if Bloom- if we just took Bloomberg's wealth and divided it up among a million households, then they could all be you know, that were originally poor, they could all be middle class, let's say, right? So there, that's the thinking. And notice with the numbers, it's um, how that worked by making the threshold lower. He's not giving everybody a million. He's given them only 50,000. And I'm restricting it not to the whole U.S. population, but merely a million households. Yeah, if, if you thought what Bloomberg owned when we say he's worth 50 billion, roughly, Remember the real number used to be reported as 57. Now I've seen it as 56.1. Um, but if really it just meant Bloomberg owned a million times the same types of things that middle-class households owned, then yeah, you could just take all that stuff and redistribute it to other people. And then that would seem to work. Absent incentive effects, right? Because once people saw that happen to him, that would change what everybody did going forward. And so, you know, a lot of people probably leave the country, you know, rich people, you know, shield their assets and whatever, say, whoa, I'm next. First mini mic, now me. Um, so even on its own terms, even putting aside morality and legal issues and just talking about the economic consequences, that would be a one-shot thing. But the point being, um, the people who think, Bloomberg's worth 50 billion and want to take his money and hand it out to everyone. That's what they must be implicitly thinking that when he's worth that much, it means he has the kind of thing that other people have just a lot more numbers of them, quantity of them. And again, in particular, <laughs> the idea that, oh yeah, he's got the, the cash just sitting in his basement. So he could just hand out cash to people. Here's a million for you and a million for you and a million for you. Cause he's just got dollar bills sitting in his basement. So incidentally, let me just mention, it's funny that sometimes when people bring that up, they'll, they'll use it to defend the billionaire mogul, not, not Bloomberg, but just in general, when, the, when these people criticize billionaires, the defenders of them, you know, guys who like watch Fox and stuff and know that markets are cool, but maybe haven't been reading Henry Hazlitt and Murray Rothbard, will they seem to concede that if a billionaire did hoard $50 billion in coin or in currency in his basement, that that would be antisocial. But they reassure people, oh, no, that's not what he's doing, though. He's, you know, he puts his money in the banks where they lend it out to entrepreneurs and home buyers and blah, blah, blah. You know, that mortgage you have was only made possible by some billionaire. And, I mean, those statements are all true, and it's important to understand how that stuff works to get a better idea of the world. But I just want to make the point that actually, actually, if a billionaire did amass his fortune just by producing things that the public wanted and paid happily for, and then that entrepreneur, all he ever did with his excess earning, you know, like he had to reinvest stuff in the business or whatever, pay people to, to get a factory up and running. But in terms of if, you know, his profit narrowly construed, all he ever did was just take it in the form of, currency and just sit on it and then he never spent it back into the community that would be the most altruistic thing he could do economically speaking i mean he could 
set up a soup kitchen or something, you could argue. But in terms of just his economic behavior and how does that confer benefits on the rest of the community, at least financially, that would be a pretty good move on his part if that's what he wanted to do. Because think about it, he's doing all this work, setting everything up, and then he doesn't get to consume anything. All he does is pile up paper notes in his basement. So if you think about it, it's like if, the, if you view the rest of society as a country and then there's the country of Bloomberg and they're trading with each other, Bloomberg is giving them all sorts of things they value, like the services of a, of a company or, you know, the new product or whatever, if we're talking about Bill Gates or Steve Jobs in terms of, um, you know, their developments of computers and software that people want. So that's what the other country gets. And then in return, what do they send the country of Bloomberg? They just take pieces of paper, put some green ink and portraits of their presidents on it and send it over. And then by stipulation, he never buys anything in return. I mean, you're getting all this good stuff in exchange for little slips of paper. That's actually a really good deal for the the non-Bloomberg nation. Again, the important thing with this analysis is if by stipulation, he never spends the money, right? So I'm not here saying trade deficits are always awesome and that the country running a trade surplus is getting ripped off. That's not what I'm saying because those, in those cases, I mean, people like foreign countries accumulating dollar reserves, they're, the reason to have them is because you can use them in the future or at least you want them to have the ability to use them in case there's a crisis or something. So the point of having dollar reserves is to be able to spend them. If you knew at the outset you were never going to spend them at the point of accumulating them was to put them in your basement and go swimming in them, then that would change the analysis. Okay, so again, back to Bloomberg. My point is people act like, oh, no, 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 it's not as if these billionaires are just piling up $100 bills in their basement and swimming in it like Scrooge McDuck. No, they invested productively in the community and they take out their family. And my point is that if he did pile it up in his basement and hoard the money, that'd be good. So specifically, in case you're wondering, like, I just don't see how that works, Bob. You know, if you're a merchant, you need someone to be buying your stuff. What would happen is, yes, prices would fall, right? So it's, it's effectively, imagine like somebody just, suppose instead, how about this? Suppose instead Bloomberg is just a weird guy and he has bonfires with cash. Like that's, he just thinks that's funny. Like he has people come over like, you know, Hollywood celebrities and stuff. And he like dresses up as the Joker and does a big pile of cash and lights it on fire and, you know, reenacts a scene from Heath Ledger. And that's what he does. And his point is just to show them, look at how rich I am. I burn money. You can't do that, could you? You you wouldn't have the courage. You couldn't afford to have this kind of bonfire. And if you did have this much money, you wouldn't burn it like I do. Like suppose he did that. I'm sure the average reporter in, in, you know, Slate or something, and by Brian Williams in the New York Times editorial comment on it, would be horrified and say how awful this was. It was going to cause terrible deflation in the 1930s. And this is so, but no, in actuality, that would be conferring benefits on the other holders of dollar denominated assets, right? So other people who literally hold currency, but also people who hold, um, you know, bonds or life insurance or whatever, things that what the asset entitles you to is a specific number of US dollars at a future date. Because again, burning cash, other things equal, means prices are lower than they otherwise would be. And so that means the holders of dollars or the holders of future dollars, 
which is one way to think about like what a bond is. It's a claim entitling you to dollars in the future. Now, once you get your hands on those dollars, you have more purchasing power. You can command more goods in the marketplace, right? So that's a specific mechanism by which if Bloomberg really did keep his money bottled up in his house, there's a sense in which that would also be giving the gains from his earlier economic activity back to the community. And yet, ironically, (laughs) both the defenders and critics of Bloomberg alike would probably think, many of the defenders would think, oh, if Bloomberg did hoard his money like that, then yeah, that'd be antisocial. That's just fine. No, actually, it wouldn't. Okay. But the real problem with all this stuff or the, the thing that you really need to see to understand ultimately the fundamental reason why redistributing or excuse me, why distributing Bloomberg's wealth away from him and into the hands of others somewhat equally would be disastrous besides the morality of it, if you don't think you should steal, is that Bloomberg's wealth is largely because he owns his company. Okay, so I just Googled something here. I don't know how accurate or recent this is, but I'm seeing a thing saying Michael Bloomberg owns 88% of the company's stock. The company being Bloomberg, of course. Okay, so when we say Bloomberg is worth whatever, $56 billion. Actually, now that I think of it, that's probably why it went down. It's just because the stock market went down so much. So probably Bloomberg's share price dropped. And that's why he's now being reported as less wealthy than he was two weeks ago. Um, so when people say Bloomberg is worth $55 billion or whatever the number is, really what they're doing is they're saying Bloomberg owns this many shares of Bloomberg's stock. The share price right now is such and such. The share price multiplied by the number of shares that Mike Bloomberg owns equals a big part of his net worth. All right, so that that's the main driving. So yes, obviously Bloomberg, I'm sure, owns a lot of fancy cars and probably has private jets and whatever and several residences that are more than mere shacks, no doubt. But it's not that he is a middle-class household times a million. No, qualitatively, what Bloomberg owns is the company he created, just like Bill Gates. It's not that Bill Gates has a heck of a lot of swimming pools under his belt, and that's why he's worth so much. No, it's because he owns a big chunk of Microsoft. So he created this company out of nothing, in a sense, and generated it, and then he's the you know, owns a lot of it. So that's why like a Randian takes such offense at this, you know, this, this drive to despoil the billionaires because to the extent that an objectivist thinks, and I know objectivists and Randians aren't interchangeable, but I don't know enough to say what the difference is. Um, it's not, you know, they, they would tend to think that the a billionaire in the United States earned the money through creativity and innovation and creating something of value that others valued and therefore is justly compensated for that. So that's the, just like Bernie Sanders isn't apologetic about being a millionaire because he wrote a best-selling book and his defenders too. They totally see that. What Bernie wrote a book. A lot of people wanted and, and he made a million plus bucks off it. What's the problem? So likewise, okay. Michael Bloomberg started a company that provided information to investors 
the so-called Bloomberg terminal. It proved to be extremely valuable such that, you know, anybody trading right now needs a Bloomberg terminal. It's a must-have item and he charges something like $21,000 a year for a subscription, something like that. And uh, that's he created that, they value it, and so he's worth whatever, $55 billion. What's the problem with that? It's the same thing like Bernie, just more so. He created more value than Bernie did for people in their own estimation, right? Bloomberg didn't stick a gun in people's face and say, hand over the money. They did it voluntarily, right? So that's, that's the idea. And so notice, if we were to try to put that into operation to take Bloomberg's shares, you know what I mean? Like, we'll put it this way. Suppose they, they said to Bloomberg, you got to hand write the IRS a check for $55 billion or else we should kill you. All right, so how's he going to raise the money? If it were a smaller amount, he could probably borrow against it. But at that level, I think lenders would realize he's not going to be able to pay us back because he's going to... So if he starts mass selling his shares, that's going to make the share price plummet. Not merely because um, it's Bloomberg selling, you know, or sorry, not merely because just of a sale in general, right? Generally you think, oh, if, if, if a owner of an asset, if the owner of an asset dumps it, that's got to push down the equilibrium price to get other people to hold it and add it to their portfolios who didn't like it as much at the higher price. But beyond that, if people knew what was going on and then they were worried about, oh, wait, is Bloomberg not going to be now calling the shots for how Bloomberg is run? Well, then that's going to make them doubt the future of the company. Right. So the point being, if Bloomberg wanted to turn his shares into $55 billion in liquid funds, like in his bank account or spread across many bank accounts, he, he couldn't do it, literally. Like it's, it would be impossible. The very act of him trying to convert his stocks into liquid funds would make his stocks not worth as much. All right. And so then if you thought, all right, well, what if he just literally handed over the stock certificates to take 88% of Bloomberg and distribute that equally per capita among the population, well, again, that would be disastrous. The share prices would collapse because now instead of Mike Bloomberg owning the company, it's like everyone in America equally owns it. It would, it would go from being a well-run financial company that offering very specific financial services to a core group of customers who really enjoy it to all of a sudden being run like the government. You know, there, there, there'd be a sense in which, um, so that wouldn't happen in equilibrium. In equal, like the people who were handed the shares would then try to sell it and they would eventually presumably get back in the hands of Mike Bloomberg. And so the whole thing would just be a massive destruction of wealth in the interim and Bloomberg would end up right back where he started controlling the company. But, and, and the people would not have had as nearly what they thought they would have gotten from the whole enterprise. Okay, let me end with a little thought experiment just to really isolate the two perspectives. So imagine there's a, a group of 100 people shipwrecked on some tropical island, you know, one of these Robinson Crusoe things, or I guess Swiss Family Robinson now, with, with uh, if the whole ship crashes and, and 100 people make it to the shore in this otherwise deserted tropical island. And um, so they you can live hand to mouth. You know, there's coconut trees and whatever, you can go out and, and catch some fish with your bare hands. But the one, one out of the hundred people is very enterprising. And so in one scenario, imagine that what this guy does is he, he knows how to build nets 
And for whatever reason, the other 99 people just they don't have that skill. But this guy figured out he like found maybe he found the secret place on the island where there's all these vines or something. Or who knows what? But for whatever reason, he can make fishing nets and nobody else can. So he accumulates a stockpile of 99 fishing nets. And then the people come to him each morning and they rent the net from him for the day because they know they can catch a lot more fish with the nets than with their bare hands. And so I'm making these numbers up, obviously, but let's say they can catch one one fish per hour with their hands, but with the nets, they can catch 10. So they would be willing to pay up to nine. So let's just say that he charges them eight, right? So the people, because they have a reason to do it too. Right, so they give them eight fish per hour. So they give them 64. If they're going to work an eight-hour shift, they pay him 64 fish for the right to rent his net for the day. And and it's worth it for them to do that because they get twice as many fish even after paying him his rental fee that way than they do with just their bare hands. Okay, so that's how it works. So, of course, this guy is very wealthy. He's the wealthiest guy on the island, he's getting all kinds of fish coming in each day. Um, so if you, if they decided, you know, they had an election and decided to despoil that guy and they broke into his mansion and each person took a net, you know, so each of the 99 people, they took his stockpile of 99 nets. Like that would, that was the source of his wealth in the scenario. And then they distributed it equally among the rest of the population. That would work. I mean, it wouldn't if the nets got frayed and he's still the only person who knows how to make nets, you know, so, but at least initially you could see why they would think that was a good thing that they had enriched themselves by just spreading around his wealth and come on, nobody needs to have 99 nets. That's crazy. That's more than any one man needs. So that would sort of make sense. All right. At least on its own terms. Again, you'd worry about incentive effects and the morality of it perhaps, but at least it would be plausible for the people to say, you know what, this is crazy. How come I just end up with, when we're the ones catching all the fish. He's just sitting in his mansion and each of us gives him 64 fish a day. This is crazy. So why don't we just go steal those, or they wouldn't say steal. Why don't we go liberate those nets that he's hoarding and give them to the people? The workers should control the means of production. All right, and you can see why they would think that. And then, yeah, at least in the short term for the life of those nets, that would make sense. Each person now, what did I say? Getting 10 fish per hour. So would get 80 fish per day per you know, work shift. Um rather than, what, 16, which is what they would be getting under his deal when he gets to retain ownership of the nets. So it looks like it's great for the fishermen. Incidentally, nobody wants to be eating that much fish, so you can fix the numbers accordingly. So (laughs) they sound more reasonable. Okay, so you see how that works. But what if instead the 100 people are shipwrecked on the island and then this guy, he figures out some way to build like a little factory. And what happens is the people come and they bring their fish at the end of the day and somehow it gets processed, you know, into other things or or people bring wood or something and he, and he makes little furniture and stuff like that, or it helps build houses. But it's this factory that the people on the Island bring the raw materials to and it processes stuff and then, you know, gives better, goods and services when all is said and done that could be made with their bare hands or simple tools. All right. And so the first thing I want to establish is the existence of this factory once up and running clearly makes the other 99 people better off because to get some people to be willing to work there, he's got to offer them wages that are better than what they could earn living hand to mouth. And so 
if you assume that there's some variation in the ability of the fishermen to, you know, catch fish, but maybe the skills at the factory aren't, you know, don't overlap with your ability to catch fish really. So it's like the people who have the worst lot just living hand to mouth on the island are the ones who are going to go work for him because he can afford to pay them the least, right? So he's not doing altruism. He's doing it to be a cutthroat businessman. The point being the people who had the worst lot with that before the factory existed, they're probably going to be the ones hired by him, all right? And then again, him producing stuff, there's goods now available that weren't available before. So he can't, in this scenario, the existence of the factory can't make anybody worse off, right? Because they could just keep doing what they were doing before. But now there's new goods and service available and a new source of employment that might be better for some of the people. Okay, so that's how that works. Now, in that scenario, the villagers get angry. They say, this is crazy. This guy's sitting over there with his factory and sitting in his mansion and he's earning, whatever, 50 times the, the median income in our society. That's crazy. Let's go redistribute it for the masses. So they go up and they just physically, because remember what he owns now, it's not that he has a stockpile of 99 fishing nets. Instead, he's got this factory, which is, you know, just the walls and it's got an assembly line on it and maybe has some machines that do some intricate things and he's, maybe he's got a 3D printer, who knows? And they just go in and since there's 99 of them and this factory is kind of this collection of like five indivisible things, they just smash it apart. They you know, physically turn it into 99 chunks and then they each take one chunk of the factory home with them. Okay, did that make everybody even in the short term as wealthy as the first guy and then, you know, just like transferring wealth from him to them. No, obviously they destroyed the thing. They destroyed the wealth. So yeah, he doesn't have it anymore. So they brought him down, but it's not that they went up in exchange. They just destroyed it. The thing that made him so wealthy, they killed. It's not that they just transferred it to themselves in a smaller helping of it. All right. So that's kind of what would happen if you really did take Mike Bloomberg's wealth and distribute among everybody, in a sense, it'd be like ripping up the company Bloomberg and giving pieces of it to hundreds of millions of Americans who don't know the first thing about how financial markets work. I mean, clearly Brian Williams and <laughs> Merrick Gay shouldn't have anything to do with Bloomberg's second quarter investment decisions, right? So that's the idea. That If you think through it, there's certain simplified scenarios where oh yeah, if the guy's wealth consisted of those things, you could conceivably take them and just give them to other people and smaller helpings and more would go around. You know, it's like some guy at Thanksgiving dinner taking all the mashed potatoes on his plate. Oh, wait a minute, share some of that. Like, yeah, in certain settings, you could imagine that working at least for a while until you ran out of mashed potatoes. But um, in general, when we talk about billionaires walking around right now, what they own is a company that they founded or maybe, you know, their grandpa founded if we're talking about the Walton family or something. And so to redistribute it from them, I mean, I get, like I said, really what would happen if you just redistributed the shares is presumably if the person thought it was a one-shot uh, expropriation, the shares would find their way back into that person's hands. So just like, I guess, in our analogy... With the factory, the 99 people the next day, once the factory doesn't exist and their standard of living drops, maybe they would have the good sense to say, oh, wait a minute. And they would sell their chunks of the factory back to 
the original guy. And so, so, that, so that would be a way of like redistributing financially, right? That he would, so still it, should, it would be in his hands, the factory, and, be, and he would reassemble it and be running it. But now he'd have this big debt. Like he would say to them, okay, up for the market equivalent of 10,000 fish, let me buy my components of my factory back. And then, you know, so it could be something like that. So that's, but notice again, the, <laughs> the point being that it, the, the control of, the means of production would be in the hands of this tiny sliver of the capitalist class, the exploiters. And that makes sense. All right. I think I've made those points sufficiently well. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.